Her reading today is in Matthew 26, starting with the 26th verse. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The word of the Lord. Over the past several months, I've been preaching sermons that delve into some of the people in the book of Genesis. We've spent time with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. There's one more sermon in this series on Leah, which will happen on October 15th. But today is the one Sunday of the year, World Communion, in which many churches of various denominations around the world join together in celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. To acknowledge this day, I want to preach a more personal, less scholarly reflection on experiences that I have had of communion in the Presbyterian Church, experiences that have enriched my faith and understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I hope that by sharing my experiences, you can reflect more deeply on your own and that such reflection will touch your faith in a way that is formative. Let us pray. Lord, as we hear your word spoken, as we experience it sacramentally, let it make its way into our hearts that we may grow in our faith, in our understanding, in our service. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As a child growing up in the Presbyterian Church in the South, what I most remember about communion is walking into the small, white, clabbered sanctuary and seeing the communion table draped in bright white tablecloth over two spires, one of which held the stack of bread trays and the other the stack of wine trays. The only other time I saw anything draped in the sanctuary was a casket covered in a lace pall or an American flag. But since the congregation consisted mainly of young families, few of whom had served in the military, I rarely saw either lace or flags. Even though the church was in transition from the rhythms of a small town congregation to those of a faster moving suburban church, the tradition around communion remained formal and majestic. Men who served were dressed in dark suits. Women likewise were dressed in solid, dark colors. 
The servers would lift the cloth off the communion table, fold it with stately precision, and when the service of communion was ended, they would unfold the cloth and returned it to its place of drapery over the empty trays. There was a sense of dignity, of holiness, and sacredness about communion, which as a child, even I could feel, even though when the elements were passed down the pew and reached our family, I did not partake, as in those days only those who had completed confirmation and joined the church were allowed to partake of the sacrament. But it was still a special service with its heightened sense of reverence, perhaps buttressed by the fact that we only celebrated communion quarterly. Even though I wasn't old enough to understand the full meaning of communion, as if age ever bestows such understanding, I could nonetheless see, hear, taste, touch, and smell the sacredness. That was for me, sufficient for me to know that something special was afoot. The most meaningful experience that I've had of communion happened in that same sanctuary the second semester of my freshman year in college. As I've shared with you before, a few weeks after Christmas, my father passed away in his early 40s following a six-week battle with cancer. I had come home as he had grown weaker and weaker. He died on a Friday morning. We had the visitation in the funeral home that evening. And the service was held Saturday morning in the small but packed sanctuary that I have just described. There was white lace draped over an oak casket. I had a flight back to college on Sunday afternoon. But on Sunday morning, I got up and went to the early service. There were a few dozen people present. And I sat on the inside aisle of the front pew about where Brian Folkerts is sitting. Opposite where 24 hours earlier, I had sat as a, as a family member at the funeral. And the table, which was closer down on the floor than this one is, was set for communion. When the time came for the sacrament, the white cloth was lifted and folded, and the minister took his place behind the small oak table. One elder stood at one end of the table facing inward, and another elder stood at the opposite end facing inward as well. Because the table was so close to the pews, I felt like I was the fourth person sitting in a circle around the table of the Lord. As the minister recited the liturgy on the night in which he was betrayed, I looked at the three people serving in front of me. To my left, facing the elements, was the man who lived across the street from our home who with his wife were my parents' closest friends in golf and tennis and cookouts and church and the town's annual charity horse show. 
His three children were close to me in age. And we spent many holidays and trips to church family camp together. They were the closest things thing that I had to cousins. And we have remained in infrequent but meaningful touch over the years. I had learned a few weeks before I learned a few weeks before that their father, the man serving communion, was in a period of unemployment, having lost his sales job several months earlier. For several months, he felt such shame that he couldn't tell his family or friends, like my parents. But rather, he got up every morning, put on a coat and tie, those relics of the business world, left the house about 8.30, would simply drive around or sit at a coffee shop or go to a movie and come home at 5 p.m. as if he had been at work. It was only when the family finances became so strained that he mustered the courage to tell his family. He had not told his best friend, my father, before his death. I then looked to his left and thought about the minister presiding behind the table. He'd only been our pastor a few months. My father's funeral was, in fact, the first he held in his new congregation. I had served on the pastor nominating committee that called him. And he had shared with us what the congregation would soon come to know. That he was an only child of a single mother who had reared him after the death of his father, which which occurred shortly after his birth. We on the search committee knew that while his mother was physically healthy and lived about an hour away in a small town in Mississippi in which he had grown up, She still felt a need to call her son several times a day, sometimes for matters that were important and sometimes not. Sometimes not even the church secretary could stave off putting her call through, even if the minister was in a meeting or a counseling appointment. When he came to our church, he was in his early, in his late 30s. He had borne the burden of his mother's loneliness all his adult life. And he would bear it for 25 more years until her death when he was in his early 60s. A few months after his death, he married for the first time and said he had never felt free to do so as long as his mother was the constant presence that she was. At the outset of his long tenure in that congregation, on that day as I sat around the table, I watched him break the bread and pour the wine, about as aware as any college student could be of the special burden he was bearing in life. To his left at the opposite end of the table was a woman who served on the office staff of the private school I attended a school to which I will return in a couple of weeks for my 50th reunion. Her two children were my age, and I knew them from the church youth group. As she stood at the table, 
I recall the Friday night football game a few years earlier when a voice came over the public address system asking the two children to come to the front gate. I didn't think much about it until the next morning when we learned that their father was one of four executives who had been killed when their company plane had crashed out west. Hence their mother's taking the job at the school I would later attend. After going person to person around the table, I circled back to myself, seated almost in their midst. Four people in a circle. Four people whose lives were marked by tragedy or need, burden or responsibility, loss recent or recent enough to still feel fresh. Four people standing in the need of prayer. Four people standing in the need of bread. Four people standing in the need of wine. Four people standing in the need of the congregation which was their home. Four people standing in the need of some tangible reassurance of the presence and care of God in their lives. The memory of that communion service now nearly a half century ago has always left me with the trust that when we approach this table, when we receive the bread and wine, no matter what denominational tradition we come from or what what the meaning of communion is in that tradition, when we receive the bread and wine, we are seeking and we are receiving nourishment of our faith at the deepest level of our human and spiritual need. Take, eat. This is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink all of ye of it. Drink all of ye of it in remembrance of me. After I became a minister and by virtue of the office, I inherited the privilege of standing behind the table. The moment in the service of communion that has become the most formative and meaningful for me is the breaking of the bread. Now, I know that I make a mess whenever I create, whenever I break the bread. I don't pull it apart. I don't, you know, pull it into pieces. I shatter it. (laughs) And if the crust is hard and flaky, I know that it flies all over the table and onto the floor beneath. I know it takes 10 or 15 or 30 minutes extra to clean up after Larry has served communion. But all of this I do on purpose. I want to break every piece of bread. I want it to be shattered and scattered. And this has to do 
with what I have come to believe is the juxtaposition, the putting together in one act, in one sacred ceremony, in one sacred moment, the awful suffering Christ experienced on the cross and the healing and redemption and hope that that suffering provides. One meaning, one moment, two opposites put together. This is my body broken for you. When we hear this sentence in the liturgy, we are hearing in this one sentence both the shattering and the sweetness of communion. This is my body, broken, shattering, for you, sweetness. In the strange mystery of who God is in Jesus Christ, it is the shattering of Christ that provides the sweetness, forgiveness, deliverance, redemption, Rectification, promise, hope. I cannot help but resist adding a little scholarship here at the end. At the conclusion of one of the most influential books I've ever read, The Identity of Jesus Christ, its author, the late Hans Frey, closes by quoting two lines of a poem from the 17th century poet George Herbert. We have sung these lines before. In our music program. These lines encapsulate what I am saying about shattering and sweetness. Love is that liqueur, sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood and I as wine. It is the sweetness in the shattering that heals us, that sustains us, that nourishes us, that keeps us going as we gather around the table of the Lord and then as we leave and go into the world to serve. Amen.